why am I turning some of these things down? Right. And, 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 and I say in the remote setting, the sisters were the ones who were doing it the most, you know, they were the ones who were like, I'm going to wear this hair wrap on this video call. I'm going to, you know, and I was kind of like, man, like I just took mine off right before I turned the camera on, but you know what? Like you inspired me. So in a certain way, I just re I embraced it. I was like, you know what, what difference does it make? I'm going to reinforce the meritocracy that I want to see as a DNI practitioner. It's important for me to re emphasize and support an environment that allows people to be their authentic self. Just like the difference is if I was wearing, you know, something that, that, that made me feel comfortable in that moment, you know, in the way it was kind of described, it was like, they're coming into my home at 9am. They're going to get what they're going to get. And I was like, copy and paste. Hey, Melo, mi gente. What up? What up? Welcome to another episode of the Quien Do It Is podcast brought to you by Plural. You already know it's your boy Pavel bringing you another special episode with another very special guest. Now, the clip you just heard in the intro is with this week's guest, Carlos Sanchez. Before getting into the full episode, let me give you a little quick bio on Carlos. Currently, Carlos is an associate media director at Starcom. Growing up in a military family, Carlos lived in several locations, both stateside and abroad, such as California, Alabama, Florida, and the Dominican Republic. Having spent 14 years between Tampa and Miami, Carlos calls Florida home. That said, he's been living in Chicago for the past eight years and has truly fallen in love with the city, but not really the winters. <laughs> Carlos has a passion for sports, with football being his favorite. In addition, he has a passion for music and is a serious history buff. For fun, he spends his time coaching youth football, playing softball, and sampling different cuisines. Now that you know a little bit more about Carlos, let's get into the episode. When people tell you to be your most authentic self, what, what comes to mind for you? What does it mean for you? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question, Pavel. I mean, I think that like being my most authentic self really just means being true to my character, true to my values, true to my brand, you know, and if you think about it in, in, in relationship to values, if I'm, if I'm remaining in, you know, if I'm continuously keeping my integrity as it pertains to my values, I feel like I'm being my most authentic self, honestly, like, and, and to be clear, like, you know, my values are being empathetic, being resourceful. Um, and, and, and lastly, um, you know, being, um, uh, um, and resilient. So, you know, net, net, I think that as long as I'm staying true to those three things, I'm being true to my, true to myself and my truest self. Um, if I'm able to apply that in any setting, then I'm being my most authentic self wherever I am. And, and I think that there's a certain level of authenticity that comes with being friends, being, you know, family, and then also being in a professional space. So, you know, not every single thing is for everyone all the time. And I'm able to, you know, distinguish time and place and situational awareness to know when I should be where. I love that, man. Resourceful, man. That's such a powerful word. I'm assuming that has to do a little bit about potentially where you grew up and maybe the need to be resourceful. Yeah, absolutely, man. So like being resourceful is something that I really prided myself on. Um, you know, my mom, you know, she's been in the military. She spent 24 years in the military. So one of the things that I grew up knowing how to do was being resourceful, you know, and she always instilled that on me and, and being able to find a solution, find a solution, you know, and part of it is to your point, like how, how you grew up being around different areas, different neighborhoods, you know, dealing with certain levels of 
of poverty and then being able to progress out of it, right? And being able to kind of see like, hey, this is a thing, you know, and 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 part of the resourcefulness, you know, translates right into the resiliencenness, right? So being able to be resilient, mm-hmm. you know, and, and as long as you're doing that and being empathetic at the same time, you won't forget where you come from and who you are. So that's why as it relates to my values, that's how I really see those coming together, you know? And I think that that those values themselves are allowing me to be my most authentic self, um, regardless of where I am. Bro, isn't it wild that like, in many ways, people get glorified for being resilient. And like, obviously, like, I think it is worth noting, like, it's it's difficult to come out of certain situations. But like, imagine if we didn't have to be put in situations where we had to be resilient. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. As if as if like, I'll put it like this. One of the things that I think is really interesting about resiliency, as it shows up in the workplace specifically, um, or even socially, too, is that, you know, black people or brown people are perceived to be incredibly resilient outwardly. We and I think we also feel that inwardly. But I think what with the the problem with that is is the standards that are applied to us, right? Mm-hmm. And it's almost perceived that you can overcome all of this. Like so I'm going, you know, and I think that's where the lack of empathy can come in is that I'm gonna give you more work to do. I'm gonna, you know, continuously move the goalposts in terms of you achieving your 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 goals or your objectives. And part of that is going to play out in an, you know, in an unempathetic way. And also, you know, to be, res- to be transparent, you're, you're, you're really not respecting everyone as an individual because you know, that's not applied to other groups, other demographics, other people. So I think the, the real thing there is being able to truly understand, you know, just because I have been able to overcome things doesn't mean that the scale should be different for me to show and prove my ability and demonstrate what I'm doing. I think that's something there, you know, being able to say that, yeah, I'm resilient, but just because I'm able to take on more, you know, to put it, to put it like this, you think historically, right? At some point in time, people perceive black people and brown people to be more resilient to pain. So they weren't in, in the medical settings being given the same type of anesthesia or anesthesia at all, because it was perceived that they could have a high tolerance. Like, why does that apply in other areas of my life? One is that's a completely ridiculous thing to think right because we're all human beings but at the same point in time why does that show up in other areas of my life why do i have to take on more just to be recognized as an equal you know in in in, in different elements you know why do why is that if i go to a store you know am i automatically going to be perceived to be as less than in terms of a consumer is it you know why am i fighting these obstacles so i think the resiliency piece is kind of like plays out in a lot of different ways and i think that the way it can show up in the workplace is you know he could take on more he could do more you know, and, and it's not necessarily if you go back to that pain analogy, like I still experience my own pain. I'm still suffering in the same capacity as somebody else. You know, and if you think about it, I'm already bringing baggage of resiliency of overcoming obstacles and overcoming things. So that to be said, like, you know, the, the playing field is not level in any way, shape or form, nor are the expectations or the standards as it relates to individuals and how they perform. Bro, that is so deep especially that comparison that analogy to just like pain in the medical field but when did you first realize that the playing field wasn't leveled and you had to in many ways like come up with a script or a plan to just go through life you know what I mean I'd say for me man honestly like many people you know I my first time experiencing that the world ain't fair as it pertains to who I am and how I look um was as a child uh you know 
long story short, my mother, she was in the military, so she had to, you know, um, continue to accelerate her career. Part of that meant, you know, going into um, what's called OCS or Officer's Candidate School. That's a, about a six to nine month long process. It can be a year sometimes, depending on how it plays out. But the, the thing is, is that in those moments, you know, these people have to be fully immersed. And it's kind of like a, a boot camp 2.0 with a little bit of college mixed in. So it's a, it's a really intense course. Um, and it's, it's very rigorous in terms of, you know, being able to get into it. All that to be said, um, during that time, I had to go stay with, with family, right? And, 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 you know, my mom was a single mom. So, you know, I had to go stay with my cousins. And, and in that process, you know, I went from being in Long Beach, California, which is a very specific, you know, environment to being pulled out of that and going into a completely all white space. And that was my first time kind of knowing I was different. I realized at that time being in those classes, you know, the way they treated me versus the way they treated, you know, my cousins were different. I noticed that, right? And I was like, wow, that's interesting, you know? And I was kind of like, what is it? And I kind of started to look at myself differently in terms of like in the mirror, how do I look? Why am I being treated this way in a different way? And it wasn't necessarily, you know, outright blatant racism, but it was definitely a difference in the way that I was approached or talked about. If I got in trouble, it was a different conversation than if my cousin got in trouble, right? And, and you know, being able to understand that. And then secondarily, another time where I noticed it in terms of the, the playing field being unlevel um, was when I moved to Alabama, right? So I went from Los Angeles, California, you know, um, in the 90s, right, into Mobile, Alabama <laughs> in the same time period. So, you know, it was really a culture shock for me there. You know, I wasn't used to how different it was and how polarizing the experiences were and how blatant the racism was. I mean, granted, like I was there in 92 for the riots for Rodney King, right? So like, I'm not saying LA was was a safe space as it relates to being an anti-racist environment. That was not the case. But what I can say is it relates to exposure to different kinds of people. There is much more different, there's much more diversity there in, in, in comparison to an Alabama, right? So I go to Alabama and we're riding the bus. And I remember I was in second grade, first or second grade, I was real young. I can't remember exactly how old I was. And we were getting on the bus and I was with one of my other cousins and um, who he was staying with me. Um, and so we, you know, black, brown family, I feel like a lot of people, you know, if you come from a certain certain thing, people, cousins moving around and staying with each other is not uncommon, right? So, you know, <laughs> yeah. we have family staying with us and I stay with family too. But, at the, but to all that to be said is that we were getting on the bus, right? And I remember it was like the first day of school and, you know, we're getting on the bus and this little kid looks at me, he's like, y'all black boys can't ride my bus. And then he used an epithet after that, right? And we were kind of like, taken aback by that and we like didn't really know exactly how to respond right and I couldn't have been you know more than eight years old at the time you know as a second grader you know and I was kind of like so immediately our response right was as a kid we didn't sit here and feel bad or sorry for ourselves we kind of turned up on that individual a little bit at that moment right and so it was a whole thing right and so like yeah. one of the principals had to come in to kind of just you know disarm the situation she was a black principal by the way um, she went to alabama state and she was just kind of like yo like that's not going to be their experience that kid needs to get reprimanded that kid was pulled off the bus but like that was like a day one and so, like yeah. the playing field was uneven at that moment and i didn't even know about rosa parks i didn't know about any of that stuff really like that as a second grader like to fully understand the significance of what just happened to me but as an adult 
And as you know, as I grew and knew more about the story of you know the 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 the, the bus boycotts and all of that, and where I was in time, it was like a crazy like microcosm of that that came you know to 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 my realization later. That's that's so sad that you have to go through that, man. And and the worst part about it is like I'm sure you're not alone. I'm sure many people have been on similar buses, if not that same bus, before you, after you, and and have gone through that situation. I, I want to know. I, like hopefully you could tell me a little bit about like how did that impact you moving forward yeah that's a really good question and I think that like part of its impact moving forward you know it kind of played out in a different way right so again my mom was in the military at a certain point in time she had to go into deployment now her being you know Dominican um, there was a natural fit for an operation that kind of came out I don't know all the details of what she was doing um, yeah. But basically what that deployment required her to do was to go to DR, right? And so I kind of described an earlier experience with me as a child and part of what that played out to she's like, okay, this time you come in with me, right? And so I always knew I was Dominican, right? And I always knew my mom was Dominican and I always knew that, you know, my grandma was Dominican and my whole family was, right? Like it wasn't like a, a secret, you know, for me. Um, but I didn't really know what that meant and I didn't really have a connection to it. And growing up, I didn't necessarily feel connected to that identity because, one, I was just a kid. Two, I'm in Los Angeles, California, where there ain't no right. Dominicans, really. And then I moved to Mobile, Alabama, where there's definitely not one that I was aware of. And so I had this, like, completely different experience, right? And so going into, you know, a polarizing world, which was either you're Black or you're White in Mobile, Alabama, I clearly knew where I sat in that dynamic, right? And then going into you know, this other other moment of trying to figure out, you know, how this plays out, going into going into the Dominican Republic as a as a fourth grader now, um, I was completely like taken out of my element, right? I didn't speak Spanish, you know, like that. I mean, I could communicate with my grandma, but it's like simple things, you know. And then I yeah. got there and I was kind of like, whoa, <laughs> this is intense. And I went straight to La Capital. So anybody who knows about Dominican Republic, <laughs> like I was in the belly of it all, right? And so um that's where my family's from too yeah yeah so i was over there you know and it was you know it, it was completely different and what that experience brought for me um was a sense of identity right because you're kind of like when did you have to deal with suppressing identity and different things like that mm -hmm. that to me was the kind of opposite of that experience in which an identity grew and part of that identity came out of that experience there and, and part of the other thing you know that came out of it was and i feel like a lot of a lot of people who have caribbean or you know maybe African backgrounds, you know, they might relate to this, but there's this dynamic that can exist in some of these countries in which you're either from here or as they say, like, you know, tu eres de allá. like you're from yeah. over there. Like, so yeah. like in, in their minds, you know, there's this like distinction. So talking about, you know, suppressing identity, when I came over there, I was super American. Like they could smell <laughs> it on me. It was just radiating yeah, yeah. and, per you know, permeating off of me. So they knew exactly who I was, but I... <laughs> I just remember being like, yo, like this is this is this is a moment in which I'm trying to not necessarily suppress the American elements of my upbringing, but immerse myself in this new identity that I've just recently discovered. And part of what that that came about was understanding what real poverty looks like, third yeah. world poverty. Yeah. I mean, Dominican Republic, if you look at, you know, poor nations in, in this hemisphere, it's at the bottom of, of that list, you know, towards the bottom, I won't say the, the very least, but, and I'm not trying to downplay my people, but I just want to give perspective to people listening as to where this sits, right? So growing soon, up there. As soon as you get off the plane and go anywhere to your destination, you see it like visibly. It's everywhere. 
It's everywhere. Uh, and, 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 and it's on a level that I had never seen before. Like, yeah, like, you know, my parent, you know, my family from uptown or whatever, I've been in New York. I, I know what that is, you know, especially in the 90s. That was a, a rough part of town. But mm-hmm. it was not like that. And like mm-hmm. the, the fundamental things that, that, that we take for granted here, they don't over there. And if every, anybody who's been over there, who spent time over there, we know at a certain point in time of the day or night, you know, it, there's, a, there's a saying that, se fue la luz, you know what I'm saying? The lights went out, bro. Literally, yeah. the electricity is gone. Yeah. <laughs> if you have enough money, you can have a generator or a power plant or whatever to help sustain part of your home and your electrical devices, but it, everything is not going to work. So for me being there, I kind of learned like what it's like to take a cold shower, what it's like to not have yeah. hot water, what it's like to, you know, watch something go bad that you wanted to have happen to eat later. But because, you know, the refrigerator went out, then it's done. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like that idea of all those things to me created an identity. So I kind of had to for lack of better words, put aside and not necessarily suppress, but, you know, immerse myself in what was happening. And it really impacted me today, you know, to be able to understand who I am and to not take for granted the things that I have that are simple, electricity, water, you know, stuff like that. I mean, those kids, and I remember what I did one time was, you know, over there, they have kids who, who, who clean shoes, right? And they call them Yolotas, right? And these kids, and they're really, really young, you know? And I remember the first time I saw one of those kids, I was like, ready to cry almost, you know, because I saw the little kid and I saw in his eyes and I knew that he probably wouldn't experience one-tenth of the things that I'm able to experience here in this country. And this is just the script that was written for him by no by no choosing of his own. Just like for me, my identity was by no choosing of our, my own, just like all of us, right? We just are what we are, whether it's gender, whether it's race, ethnic, ethnicity, any of those things, we don't choose them, they just are. And so the suppression piece, you know, as I move forward in life, learning how to understand how to suppress some of the ideas that come in this country with being kind of entitled to things or feeling like, you know, these things are here for everybody. That's not the case for everybody in the world. So I kind of had to like learn that like in a sense of appreciation. Right. And, and, you know, so that, that, that was an interesting moment in time for me. Going to those trips are one way for me where I actually like fell in love with the culture. Like I remember going over there and at one point I had like the Dominican flag but, uh, belt buckle. Yeah, 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 Dominican yeah, yeah, flag yeah. chains, man. I was so <laughs> passionate. But yeah. as passionate as I was, I still got the same sort of feedback that you got. You know, over here in the States, I'm like, yeah, I'm Dominican, this and that. But when I get over there, they're like, hey, de gringo, this and that. You know what I mean? So it, it was tough. It was like this tough area where like I'm trying to embrace the culture and I'm trying to like learn about the learn about the history and all those things, but depending right. where I am, I'm like not really Dominican enough. Yeah, oh, absolutely, absolutely. You know, I, I love that. It's funny because a lot of us who are from over here, who to your point, you know, experience these moments of great pride and passion as it relates to yeah. you know the identity and, and the connection. Um, when you go over there, it's never enough. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's never enough. Like yeah, all right, but you know, at the end of the day, like you're from over there though. And that's kind of like this, you know, delineation, either you're from here or you're from over there. And it's like, it's, it's, just, it's, it's a funny dynamic. You know, you know, it's funny too. There's this sense of um, very prideful in the sense, you know, just for the country, La Patria, whatever. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting, like in certain corporate settings, many times, like I'm automatically identified as black, you know, either black or white. People don't even assume I'm Dominican. Right. So did you go through that as well? That's a really good point, honestly, Pabell. And it's funny because I brought one of my um, one of my cousins over there for the first time. And, you know, 
complexion wise, he's definitely a couple couple of shades darker than you or I. Mm. And when we got there, it's funny because, you know, they immediately said, and and, and I'll give you just just for comparison's sake, you know, think think of complexion equivalent to like that of like a Luda, right? In terms of he went over there and they were like, Pero te parece Arcángel? I'm like, what? I'm like, dude, our guy hell is like super light, bro. (laughs) But the thing is, is that this, if you, if you know a lot about Dominican history and kind of the politics over there, they only identify, if you have a cedula, right? Which is their identification, their ID. If you Mm -hmm. have one over there or if you have a passport, it comes in two different ways, three different ways, light, medium, and dark. Because inherently the assumption, and I can't, I don't want to put this in perspective for people. The assumption is you're already black. We're just quantifying how, how complexedly black you look from a phenotypic standpoint, right? Because if you think about what would be in comparison to what we think of white people over here, there are very few and far between over there. It's some level of mix that's so apparent you can see it most of the time. And some people look a little bit, you know, more along the, the, the Taino type, you know, phenotypic traits, right? But at the same point in time, somewhere on, on either their mom, their grandma, their, their somebody is what we would equate to as phenotypically being Black here in the States. And so to your point, they don't, in that culture, think of it that way because you're talking about a place in comparison to the United States that have roughly... Um, and this is a loose quote, roughly a million enslaved Africans brought to that place that's the size of Connecticut, roughly, right? So there's inherently everybody in a certain capacity, right? The one drop rule couldn't work there. It just couldn't work. So if you think about that, how it's internalized over there and in comparison to who they share the island with, right, which is Haiti, there's a very, very different way of perception of identity as they express phenotypically, particularly as you mentioned being black. Over here in the United States, that is because of law, because of policy, because of a variety of different components, it's a lot different in the way it's internalized. And I think to what you described, you know, being being a person who has this identity that's hard to quantify for many people. Like when I saw you immediately, I'm like, okay, he looked like that's my kin, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I didn't, I didn't necessarily have a moment of, of misunderstanding, but that doesn't mean that if I saw somebody else who wasn't Dominican, I wouldn't think the same thing, right? Because I have an American perception of how race plays out and how that dynamic exposes and shows itself. But I think that I definitely experienced that as well, Pavel, honestly, where it's like, I'm in this room and my name itself, right? When people, if, if I'm applying for something and I come in, they never got who they thought was going to walk through the door. Oh, really? Nah, man. They always think I'm going to be somebody else or I'm going to look like something else. Or, you know, I mean, I mean, this is the second time in my life I've had a dreads. I've had these for almost 10 years. I had this in, 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 the, in the high school, college time of my life as well, you know? So it's like people, when they see me, you know, they didn't necessarily always know where I was or they can't label me and put me in a box. But at mm. the end of the day, they know I'm ethnic and they know I phenotypically have black expressive traits. So right. from an American perspective, that's where they go first. Then when they find out my name, then they're like, well, now I just don't know what to do. And that's because there's a myth that I think is, is, is reminiscent of a unicorn, right? Like a black 
Hispanic or Latino doesn't exist, but Afro Latinos are everywhere. In fact, yeah. if you think about it in comparison to the, the, what is, what is the United States it, to, in comparison to the rest of North and South America and the Caribbean? I mean, there's a lot of black people that are here in this hemisphere that aren't American. In fact, quite a sizable amount of people who are here um, that are Afro Latinos in, in this hemisphere that are coming from different places. So yeah, I've experienced these, these weird dynamics um, where people are like, I don't know how to, how to, how to deal with this. <laughs> and so it's kind of like, now I got to go down this long, you know, and I don't, I don't choose to partake in that anymore. It's having to explain things. I'm like, look, this is who I am. You can dig it or you can't. And at the end of the day, I can't turn this off. So, you know, the way, the way my hair and, 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 and how I look is what it is. And it, it and that's just what it's going to be. Yeah. Well, I think, I think it appears it's such an interesting topic as well, especially like in, in professional settings. Cause I think we've been trained to believe that so many parts of our identity are, are unprofessional. Even when I was in high school, for example, I went to all boys Catholic high school in the South Bronx called Cardinal Hayes. And they had policies that I've always thought were racist for, but you, it's just, it's just hard to label it as such. For example, it's the same school where Regis Philman went like way back in the day. But when I went to school, it was, there weren't any white people. It was like all Dominicans, Puerto Ricans and black people. Right. Um, but there was this rule where your hair couldn't be past a certain length, right? So automatically, they explicitly mentioned can't have afros, can and besides the length part, they said you can't have braids, you can have dreads, can't yeah. have dreadlocks, any of those sort of things, right? And they they tried to make it seem as if like it was because of the length. But if you look at Regis Philman, um, R.I.P., his hair in like his yearbook photo, it was like this slick back look. And that mm. shit was like the size of an afro. He got away with that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Um, but I think, I think what they were trying to prepare us for in many ways was to like people's negative perceptions of what certain hairstyles and certain looks equate to in some people's minds. But I think what they're, what they were also teaching us was that like, you can't be yourself and be successful. You know what I mean? Like in many ways right. they're trying to train us. And my grandfather was the same way. Like he would tell me, do you see presidents and CEOs with beards and do rags and tattoos? Nah. Right. So like, you know what I mean? So in many right. ways, I think he also was trying to like protect me, but he was also trying to tell me like, I should be less of myself to, right. to be successful. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. And I think that growing up, you know, I think that my, it's funny because I kind of have a, 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 a the, the opposite experience, right? Where it's like, you know, being, having this sense of pride in who I was and being able to wear an Afro and being able to wear, you know, my hair long and, 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 and get, get the braids and doing all of that, you know, that was a part of kind of my identity and, and I create and, and not created, but like I started to create this connection to that identity in through expression. Um, and that happened in middle school, right? So like, I mean, during really? the Allen Iverson, yeah, during the Allen Iverson times, I mean, I had every cornrow style you can think of. I wore that into the end of high school in which then I, I dreaded up. Um, but yeah, you know, and, and, and that identity of having my hair long and doing what I wanted to do was always something that I, I found very connect, connected to. And it, it was like this expression and like my parents, you know, my mom never really suppressed it or did anything like that. I think that there was a lot of, you know, Afro-Latino households that have these complex identity yeah. issues. And let's call it what it is. There's a lot of Black Latinos that have a problem with outright saying that they got Black family members, that they are descendants of Africans that came into this, this hemisphere because of enslavement, right? They have a problem with it. And I personally find it despicable, honestly. 
because it's it's suppressing oneself and reducing one's identity and trying to misalign one identity to you know Europe Eurocentric traits and in and, and this white supremacist idea of beauty. And I don't subscribe to that. My mom's never subscribed to that. We as a, as a family didn't subscribe to those things. Now I will say that like, you know, wearing your pants low and doing all of that, <laughs> they were not playing it. They were not playing it. They was like, yo, no, pick, no, no. pick them up. And I think that a lot of people's family had that same thing. But as it translates into the work setting, you know, it's funny because I had a moment in which I was first getting into corporate America and was kind of shocked a little bit, right? Having at this point in my life spent you know, the last, you know, six years or whatever in Miami and coming into this corporate setting and, and, and learning about what it's like, you know, in Florida, particularly South Florida, you know, it's very similar in the sense that like, you're going to see a lot of people that look like you. I mean, you described your high school experience very similar to like what I had envisioned the Boogie Down Bronx being demographically. <laughs> you just, you disencapsulated that in a school setting, but, but bringing that to you know, what it's like to be in, in Miami, that's depending on where you are, that's where, that's what you'll see. That's all you'll see, right? Does that same type of demographic play out um, in different ways. But all that to be said, when I came to corporate America, I wasn't necessarily attuned to the fact that wearing do-rags and wearing all of these, you know, expressions of oneself and identity were inherently looked down upon. So I struggled and was like not having as much situational awareness to be like, dude, the do-rag comes off before you get, like when you get off the train, take it off kind of thing. And I didn't really necessarily fully understand that too. And granted, I'm from Florida, so I'm in Chicago now. I've been here for quite some time, um, shy of a decade, but a long, long time nonetheless. Um, and, you know, dealing with winter, wearing winter hats, like that wasn't something I was familiar with. So naturally I'm like, look, I, got to rag up before I put, put that on. Right. <laughs> and so I was not, I would go to, you know, not take it all off at the same time. And I kind of felt like, you know what, I don't know how to balance this. And I wasn't necessarily picking up on social cues. Like, do you see anybody else here doing that? So why are you doing that? And then I kind of went to this moment of then starting to downplay a lot of those things. Right. And, and what do you, what do you mean downplay? I mean by like, all right, if I didn't take it off before I got off on the train and I forgot, I'm gonna go to the bathroom and take it off. Right. I don't, I, you know, not necessarily want everybody to see all that at that point in time, because I then realized that, hey, I wasn't picking up on what was happening. So I was conflicted because I didn't realize it was necessarily inherently wrong. But I did kind of feel a little bit like people were looking at me in a different kind of way. And I was built off of the idea of a meritocracy. I'm going to be judged off of what I do, not how I choose to express myself. But that's not always the case. Right. We know that inherently that's not how it always works out. Um, particularly that's what I was. That's what I was going to ask you. I was like, did you just look around and didn't see anyone that was doing the same thing? And then you thought, all right, well, like, let me adjust. Or did you get, like you said, certain looks or certain things that then force you to think about those things? Yeah. And I would say it like this, somebody who, and it would be in a microaggression state, somebody who was communicative with me at certain point in times of the day, if they saw me looking like that, they would be less communicative, mm. kind of like keeping it moving, you know, because they don't want to be associated with what I'm doing, you know, mm. and I'm, and I'm, and I'm in a certain capacity projecting that a little bit. But in, in the reality of it all, I know that you chop it up with me. Here we are. You're not chopping it up. I see you're trying to keep it moving. So that said, I'm kind of like, wait, okay, what, well, what's different in this, in this you know, interaction? And I kind of put it back to what I was wearing. And so to your point, that's kind of how I started to pick up on those cues and how it then showed itself later. You know, I started to kind of like, okay, I realize that I'm different. I realize that I'm doing things different. And at a certain point in time, I had this other kind of thing where it's like, you know what? why am I turning some of these things down, right? And, 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 and I say in the remote setting, the sisters were the ones who were doing it the most. 
you know, they were the ones who were like, I'm going to wear this hair wrap on this video call. I'm going to, you know, and I was kind of like, man, like I just took mine off right before I turned the camera on. But you know what? Like you inspired me. So in a certain way, I just re I embraced it. It was like, you know what? What difference does it make? I'm going to reinforce the meritocracy that I want to see. As a DNI practitioner, it's important for me to re-emphasize and support an environment that allows people to be their authentic self. Just like the difference is if I was wearing, you know, something that 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 made me feel comfortable in that moment, you know, in the way it was kind of described, it was like they're coming into my home at 9 a.m. They're gonna get what they're gonna get. And I was like, copy and paste. How can I create an environment where we can reinforce that structurally, where you're not gonna look down upon? Because we wanna create this opportunity of meritocracy. We talked earlier in the conversation about the goalposts moving, not being, you know able to achieve the same things, whether it be because of the perception of what you should be able to tolerate or the idea of you're not good enough to get this anyways, right? So we talked a little bit about that in the beginning. To bring that back full circle, what, what, what difference does it make? My quality of my deliverable, my ability to communicate as a client lead, my ability to produce policies and programs and initiatives as a DNI practitioner are not compromised in any way, shape, or form because I have on this do-rag right now at 9 a.m. And yeah. no, now, if I'm going to have a call, I'm going to be in front of a larger audience. I'm going to situationally read my audience and say, you know what, maybe mm -hmm. I should, you know, adjust accordingly. Right. But that's just like you wouldn't go into a four star restaurant, you know, necessarily wearing a hat on. Right. A five star <laughs> restaurant. You're going to know, hey, look. And, and a lot of times I'll say, hey, this is this is a restaurant. We just don't allow that. in." I'll tell you an example of that. I was at Michael Jordan Steakhouse here in Chicago and I had on a White Sox hat and they were like, hey, sir, can you please remove the hat? Um, you know, this is kind of one of the rules that's, that's of the establishment. And I was like, damn, Michael, don't you, you're not going to let me wear the fitted, bro? <laughs> like, damn, Mike, you going to do me like that? <laughs> but, but at the same point in time, you know what? They're like, this is, you know, we're trying to have a certain level of an experience here for everybody. And part of that experience, I'm like, and I was basically like, yo, did Mike write that rule? But shit, it has his name on the restaurant. Why would he have not subscribed to that? You know, so that's where it was a moment in time. I'm like, you know what? situational awareness okay that's yeah. cool that doesn't minimize who i am and i'm not going to turn down who i am it's not going to affect my order but if this is the rules of the world where i am right now all right i can adjust to that i i hate those i mean all right, there's so many things that you mentioned i want to get back to the durag story <laughs> but i hate those rules that like uh like bars and restaurants put together that it's like oh we're trying to maintain a look like there's this there's a sports bar around where i grew up it's uh um called gin mill and like i remember there was one summer where army for t-shirts were just popping for example right. right and like everybody was rocking army with the little with the little tie with the little the little string ties at the bottom sure. of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah but like all right when i say everybody's like black people i'm just generalizing like black versus white right latinos etc um right. but like in instead of saying black people aren't allowed in this establishment they yeah. would say army for t-shirts aren't allowed in this establishment you know what i mean right. um like they would say like no athletic wear they would say yeah. like no no tims or these kind of things but then you look inside the restaurant or the or the bar and it's like yo is dude wearing a tank top and flip-flops in there but yeah. are you telling me i can't get in with like actual clothes and, yeah. and i feel like it's these like little things that people do or say to like try to keep us out without just like sounding racist you know what i mean dude i have so many experiences with that <laughs> it's like yeah. it is like it's embedded into the way i am prepared to go out yeah. Um, and so I wanted to say in relation to Michael Jordan's restaurant, I was wearing fatigue camo shorts 
and some J's on and all that. They were just like, yo. And you got the J's on. That's respect. It's yeah, MJ's yeah, I, restaurant. I, exactly. I had the J's on the whole thing. They was like, yo, all's cool, bro. But hey, could you just do me a favor and just remove the hat? I'm like, all right, whatever. I'm not going to chip on that. Sure. Going back to what you were saying, the experience of being, and I know you probably felt this at some point in time, being rejected at the door for the, we don't oh. do that look. Yeah. We don't do that look tonight. We can't, and it's like literally that happened to me so many times. And it was like, oh, your pants are too baggy, or oh, no, we don't do sneakers, or oh, we don't do, you know, if they're like, yo, we don't do the fitted cap, I'm like, all right, whatever, then I can take that off. You know what I mean? Like, all right, cool, fine. I'm not going to put up a stink on that one. But if you're like, yo, we don't, we don't do that look. And I'm like, dude, I got on Ralph Lauren everything right now, and I know (laughs) my outfit costs more than what you're wearing, and I know I have money to spend, and I'm about to go get a bottle, and you're going to treat me with this type of service. It's despicable. And I get to these moments where I used to get outraged, bro. Like I would, I would come out of myself to let people know how I felt at that moment, exactly to calling it for what it is. And it's even more frustrating when it's a black or brown person, you know, pushing the rule on me. I'm like, really, bro? You know, and I know that that's not unique, but dude, it got to the point where it's like, I know if I'm going somewhere, I'm not, I'm going to change what I could have possibly worn to account for that. And I'm sure like everybody kind of has a little bit of that anxiety as a black male, brown male going up to the door. I'm like, yo, pull pants up. Everything needs to be all right. Cool. Cause I'm not about to get rejected. This is too far. You don't want to be that one friend in the group. Yeah, that gets rejected. man. Yes, dude. Yes. And it's happened so many times where it's like, so, 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 so real quick, I'll say that like growing up in Miami, there were so many crazy, as you said, outright racist rules. And it would really show itself on South beach. And, yeah. you know, and, and, and in these kind of high traffic, high popular club areas to exactly what you said. You didn't say no black brown people, but you described everything that I know a lot of black and brown people wear. I, as a black and brown person, I'm also wearing these things. And I know exactly who you're targeting with these rules. Um, but it got to the point where it's like, you know what, we were tired of that. So we just stuck in our neighborhood and stayed right in the smack of it all. And anybody who's familiar, you know, with, with, with Miami, like we were partying at Alapata. We would party in the city. We wouldn't even go to the beach because we were tired of it. We were like, man, I'm tired of that. And we would stay right there. We could wear whatever we wanted to wear, and it didn't matter. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, But I think think a lot of ways, like some of those things happen in corporate America as well. It's like, quote, unquote, professional attire, um, or like you have to stay professional. But it's funny, when I looked up the definition of professionalism, it's mm-hmm. funny. Uh, sorry, I was just canceling my next meeting. I was like, this may go over and I kind of wanted to go over. So I'm gonna cancel my next one. Um, <laughs> uh, it's funny, like when you look up the definition professionalism, it mm-hmm. is a skill or I forget the second word, maybe like competence or ability to do your profession yeah. has nothing to do with what you look like, has right. nothing to do with like what you wear, how you speak, how you sound any of those things. Like, we've right. just been trained to believe that it was that way. And I think, well, not what I think what what I love about your story is this constant theme of representation in a positive way, people reinforcing who you are and not downplaying it or telling you that it isn't enough. And I love the fact that it's also women coming yep. to the stage, like with your mom, for example, and then right. um, some of the sisters at, uh, in your, in your, in your workspace. Yep, yep. Yeah. At work, like you saw them doing a certain thing. You're like, wait, what? You did that? How did that go? Right, right. What was that like? <laughs> yeah. But, and, I, and I think that example of you, like, with a do-rag, like, it doesn't always have to be a do-rag or a head wrap to somebody. Like, that do-rag or head wrap could be a hoodie. It could right. be, for them, the way that they speak. For them, it could be their background. Like, right. 
that could be their art or like the messiness of their part, whatever it is, you know what I mean? But right, right. for you, what was that experience like when you went to a meeting in a do-rag? Because that sounds very simple, but that's a big deal. You know I what? I'll, I'll say this. I'll say this. You know, I, I was on a client desk and I was working in, in, in you know, being a client lead. Um, that's my little one. If y'all hear him, um, he, he, uh, but, but, but basically I, I, I was in this meeting and I was like, you know what, I'm going to do it, you know? And I'm just like, and it was literally like a 9am meeting. So it was almost in a sense of like, I just didn't have literally, I just didn't really have enough time to kind of get it, to get it rolling that day. And I was like, you know what, I'm just rolling in as I'm rolling in and I'm having a conversation as I'm having it. And it, I will say this, this was also in the middle of the pandemic where it's like, nobody was getting here because everybody was a bummy. Yo. So at a certain point in time, I'm like, dude, I'm not crispy right now. I'm just going to wear what I want to wear. And it is what it is. And in that moment, I was kind of like, you know what, at first I almost like, felt myself reflexing just like getting ready to pull it off but I was like you know what we're, we're rocking with it and so that moment was a, was 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 definitely liberating um and from there you know I kind of just felt a, a, a great sense of pride being at an organization that didn't make me feel any kind of way about what I was doing not one person brought it up not one person looked at me less than nobody compromised the integrity of the work or the conversation or the suggestions or recommendations I was making nobody questioned any of that and to me, being at an organization like that, like Pubis' group, like Starcom, and having, and I'm not trying to get like, you know, total company line kind of thing, but at the same <laughs> point, I'm like, what an experience. How, how liberating is that? How liberating is that? And that to me was a moment I was like, you know what? I'm at the right place. I'm at the place I'm supposed to be at, you know? And, and those other experiences, they were what they were at that moment in time. But where I am right now at this moment in time, this is where I'm supposed to be. Were you, were you nervous going into it? Did you have... Like, as you mentioned before, I think, I think you said, like, going into certain situations, I've been trained to have a script, to have yeah. a plan, because I know that someone's going to say something. This is what I'm going to say as a rebuttal or to protect myself, if you will. Yeah. Did you have some of those thoughts going into it? <clears throat> Honestly, I felt like I was thinking about those thoughts. And then I was like, you know what? Why am I over here creating a situation where I'm already being defensive? And I'm projecting my insecurity on this moment onto somebody else. And the reality was no one said anything. <laughs> no one blinked to die at it and it was fine. And so to your point, like I was starting to like create this like script and I was like, you know what? That's me projecting an insecurity in this moment onto somebody else because I'm doing something that I haven't necessarily regularly done. And to what you described, there was people wearing hats in the meeting. There was people exactly. you know, doing other things. So, what, so, so what, what is the difference between what I'm doing at this moment? None. So that was like, you know what? I'm just going to stay assured in myself and stay true to myself and my brand and, and, and my values. And that's what I'm going to do. I love that, man. I agree. I mean, in many ways, a do-rag is um, just like people wear hats. Like, oh, I have, I'm having a bad hair day. Let me just put on this hat. No one says anything. Baseball right. caps. Right. Um, for some people, it's not even just for their hair. It's a fashion statement for right. you. It could be the same thing, either one right. or both. So right. like, I've always said like, what's the difference, but I've brought up some of those examples to other people and they were like, no, you, you can't do that. So I love that, man. I, I love that you're in many ways, um, pushing boundaries, but also not only just like corporate wise, but for yourself, you know what I mean? Like yeah. certain insecurities, like you're testing certain things and then removing some of these stories that maybe you've created in your head and then. I love the fact that in that experience, like it wasn't a negative situation, you know what I mean? And right. that situation, unlike growing up, when you had that racist experience, you might've pulled back this one. You're like, Oh shit. Like I could probably, I could do this again. Like, I don't have to like right, worry right. about certain situations, man. So that's dope. Um, in, 
to wrap up, man, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, man. So I love that you're continuing to be yourself. You're continuing to test new boundaries. Like what's one thing that continues to empower and inspire you to continue being your most authentic self? Honestly, what continues to empower me is, is, is the youth, man. It's the youth, you know, I'm, I'm a long time, you know, youth football coach here on the South side of Chicago. I got a lot of cousins who look up to me. I got a son now who obviously looks up to me. Um, and really it's the youth, man. I want to create, I want to, my, my objective in all of this that I'm doing in the media landscape is centered around one principal goal of mine. And honestly, the goal is centered around ensuring that images projected to these black and brown kids are positive reinforcing images that don't make them feel bad about who they are and what they can't change about themselves. That's my goal. That's my goal. And, and, and I wrote that down and I try to do everything every day to, to, to make sure that that's the reality that these kids experience. And that means me also living up to that and being my authentic self and being able to bring all of that in that same moment. And I know I kind of have like a crazy story being from here, being from there, having all these experiences. I know that that's not necessarily something that, you know, we all have a unique story, but I think that there's some kind of weird nuances in mind and I get that. Um, but at the same point in time, in terms of how, regardless of where a kid's from, why does he have to feel less than or, or have a, an image of himself that he's seen representative in, in, in ads, representative in content, representative in movies, music, anything that makes him feel less than what he truly is, that, that's what inspires me and how I can continue to do that and emulate it and show it because it's one thing to preach it and then me subscribe to suppressing myself. That doesn't work because now I'm not practicing what I'm preaching. So I'm, I'm out here like, you know what? I'm going to be me and I'm going to do what I want to do. And I'm going to make sure that the work that I do is quality and I'm putting it forth in an, in, in an environment cr to create opportunities behind me. That's what it's about. You know, you think blocking and tackling, you know, I'm out here to block it. You know, I'm not even worried about making the plays. I'm just trying to block so there's much space can be applied and there's a whole bunch of green lanes everywhere for people to cut up field and, and, and score six.